0: Lord be the Lord Lord be with you let us pray from our opening hymn today Holy Spirit power divine cleanse this guilty heart of mine in thy mercy pity me from sin's bondage set me free in the name of Jesus Amen. Being set free from our sin according to God's mercy is kind of our theme for uh, running through our our readings we're going to unfold today from Luke 16. Uh, you're going to need your handout. I didn't put the, I'm going to try to cover a, a bit, some big chunks of Luke 16 today. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, now I'm, I don't see any Bibles. There's not many Bibles left on the rack, but you might need a Bible. Are there some back there? Otherwise, make friends with the person next to you and mooch off of theirs and when they look away, steal it. No, Couple of quick reminder announcements. The uh, Lay Theology Conference from, from yesterday was excellent. If you didn't get a chance to come, um, all that, as Pastor Schumacher mentioned in announcements, is uh, on the church's YouTube page. You can go back and, and listen to those. And once I get the audio edited down and uploaded to the church website, it'll be on our podcast as well, so you can listen to the, uh, the audio of that. A tremendously helpful. Um, conversation. Um, This was brought to my attention, uh, reminded me about, there's, there's, the LCMS has a what about series of like answering a number of different questions. What about different denominations, different theological ideas? Uh, What about suicide? What about drugs? What about remarriage and divorce and all these different things? This is uh, the differences between the ELCA and the LCMS that somebody had requested. But these are like, there was a bunch of these and similar type books on that little track rack by the Welcome Center that spins around. So if you ever, if you're ever killing time in the narthex, sniff over there and, and look around and, and grab some of those little books. They're pretty helpful, concise treatment of different theological topics. Ash Wednesday, next, is uh, not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday, I got a few groups signed up, uh, but we still have some slots for people to sign up to bring some stuff, um, and also, um, especially dessert. There's no dessert sign up, so if you want sugar, uh, unless you, I mean, if, we, if everyone just corporately gives up dessert for Lent, then we don't have this problem. But, um, <laughs> but if you want dessert, there's no dessert sign up, so anybody bring dessert, but there's also sign ups for all the soup on the on the Welcome Center. And with that, let's jump into Luke 16. The parable of the unrighteous steward is often called. So to kind of get a running start into this, what we want to do is like refresh, it's been a couple of weeks. The context in Luke 15. So last, last week was Bishop Poyola, the week before it was Luke 15, where Jesus famously hits these three lost things, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the son, the lost the prodigal son. Now those parables are all rightly heard. I mean, you can, we, we, they often get pulled out of their context, but in the, in the context, the very beginning of chapter 15, who is he talking to? Do you remember the context? Yeah, so the tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to Jesus and eating with him, and the Pharisees are grumbling. And in response to their rejection of this welcoming mercy and forgiveness of Jesus, he gives these, these parables on how um, whenever there is one sinner who repents on earth, what happens in heaven? Rejoicing. And it's as a party. And every, that's, the, that's this repeated theme. So there's repentance on earth, rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. And then in the prodigal son, when the son who is lost is found, there is feasting in this great party. So still in that same, in that same like breath of parables, Jesus, I mean, we have it broken down to a different chapter and there's weeks in between, but really it's just following the same conversation in Luke 16, 1, He also said to the disciples... So he's got an audience of the disciples, but we also should note that the the Pharisees are still the audience. They're still there with the disciples. They're overhearing his conversation with the disciples. And we know this because you can fast forward to verse uh, 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. So they're just like, they're just sitting by like those two grumpy old guys in the Muppets sitting up in the like complaining about stuff. That's the, that's the Pharisees. So um, I want I to look at parables in general for just a moment. When we hear all the parables of Jesus, the, especially the, the parable of the unrighteous steward and, and, and many like it, uh, we're often tempted to, to be hit by the parable at face value, as though the surface level reading of the text, they, they give some kind of maybe some helpful moral principles or helpful uh, ethical guidance for how to use our money uh, in the case of his like maybe stewardship type parables um, some laws maybe on how to how to love our neighbor better like in the case of the um, the good samaritan so when you read the good samaritan there's this there's there's always an easy interpretation of the parable that we can make easy applications to ourselves and kind of a fun way to think about the parables is anytime you read a parable, whatever that initial, like easy surface level reading of the text that anyone should be able to get, that's probably wrong. And the reason is, is that in Luke 8, if we think back in Luke 8, 10, Jesus had said to the parable, it was in the middle of the parable of the sower, where you got the the seed that falls on the four different grounds. And then the, the disciples are standing there and they're like, why are you talking in parables? And he says to the disciples, to you is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but for everybody else, it's hidden in parables. And this hiddenness, and this, the word for hiddenness, and the word for secret is mysterion, the mysteries. So the, there's this mystery, this secret hiddenness that's in these parables that is given to the believers to know as a revealed mystery. And if you want to, since a lot of people have got Bibles in front of them, you, in front of you, if you want to do some digging, uh, first if you flip over to uh, 1 Corinthians 2. Well, maybe we'll, while you're flipping to 1 Corinthians 2, I'll just read the context in Luke 8 as well. We're going on a little... Bible verse hunt today. Luke 8.10. Uh, Jesus said, and so the disciples asked him what the parable meant. He said, to you it has been given to know the secrets, the mysterion, of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables so, seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. So, we get this, this idea of this, what, secrets being hidden, mysteries of God being hidden underneath the parables. Now, if you go to 1 Corinthians 2, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, who wrote 1 Corinthians? St. Paul, good. And who's he writing to? The church in Corinth. Easy. I was just killing time so I could turn to it. 1 Corinthians 2. Verse seven, uh, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So the secret wisdom of God. So even in the context when Paul is writing, saying how we don't preach the, the wisdom of this world that the Greeks and the Greeks demand, but we preach Christ crucified, foolishness. So this wisdom of the cross is hidden. okay? Now again, so the, the blinking red light on this and the empty battery picture must indicate <laughs> something has occurred. If anybody can find two AA batteries, the first one to bring me two AA batteries gets 100 years out of purgatory. Uh, Romans, uh, so we're all in First Corinthians, First Corinthians 4 verse 1, so on the same, really the same pages there. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries, the mysterium of God. So the pastor, is uh, Paul's talking about the office of the apostle as stewards of the mysteries of God. What are, what are stewards? Yeah, so they have stuff that, that, that doesn't belong to them, that they're just doling it out to others. So the pastor is then this entrusted with these gifts that don't belong to him that's giving out these mysteries. And then last, Romans 16, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts Romans. Romans 16, 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, the mysterion, that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. So this mystery, this mysterion, this, when we think mystery, hiddenness, it's all, it's all this concealed thing. It is actually, it has been revealed. And for you and me, we know that it's revealed in the mystery of the cross itself. All right. <laughs> All right. Very good. So, the, so, God, the, mystery, so the, the cross is kind of the key, the, the main interpretive thing to understanding the mystery of what's, all the mystery of what's happening in the, in the New Testament, the mystery of the cross. We know, like the end of the story, we know the punchline of the joke. We know that God is working through the lowliness, the weakness of the cross to bring about salvation. The power of God is, is hidden in the weakness of the cross. But if you don't have that, like, interpretive key, then nothing else makes sense. That, and that, and that's, Jesus is talking about that even with regard to the parables. So to the disciples, it's given to know the secrets, the mystery of the kingdom of God. But for everything else, everyone else, it's hidden in the parables. So when you read a parable if you're seeing if you're not if you're not seeing anything hidden it's just this face value that a pharisee would, would walk away with okay jesus has taught me some, some helpful ethical guidelines from this teaching then that's the, the way the parable the, the way that the, the uh, pharisees would hear the parable but that's not the point that's so helpful when we read the good samaritan And we're mindful that the Good Samaritan is there not teaching us how to love other people. I mean, that's the law teaching, and it's not not wrong, it's not bad, but it's just, it's insufficient. It's not the whole point. So Jesus isn't giving the Good Samaritan to teach us how to love our neighbor, but he's giving us the Good Samaritan to teach us about himself. He's the one who's on the side of the road, dead and dying for us, but also he's the one who comes and does all the saving for, the, for us who are dead and dying on the side of the road. So we're always seeing, we're always seeing the cross in these parables. Now that's so that, with that kind of background on interpreting the parables, oh, one more thing on the parables that we've, we've talked about a, a few times. Remember that there's also this, there's always a rhetorical impact of the preaching of God's word. And today's um, today's Old Testament lesson and the gospel reading both kind of do the same thing, where, where Jesus is like, if you, um, you're better off to cut off your hand, uh, cut off, rip out your eyes, than to sin with your hand in your eyes and end up in hell. And what, So Jesus isn't actually telling us to cut off our I eyes, mean, because oh, doing such wouldn't solve the problem, because the problem is the heart, right? But what he's getting at, this, this rhetorical impact of the gospel that hits us with the seriousness of our sin and gives us the gift of repentance. So when Jesus is giving these parables like to the Pharisees in hopes that he would turn them in repentance, he's hitting them like with the shock of the prodigal son. Remember, at the end of the prodigal son, you get the older brother, who's this not rejoicing, and he's, he's obviously put out there as this rejecting, rejecting older brother. And the, the, as we read this text, it's Jesus trying to hit the Pharisees as being that guy, as being the older brother, that they would turn in repentance. So the, the parables, always remember the parables are in some way about the, about the cross. Otherwise, ye, why is Jesus telling us about money management principles? And also, in telling the parables, Jesus isn't is not telling us about stuff, but he's actually doing stuff to us. God's word is living and active. So not just to us, but to the Pharisees and the disciples, whoever's listening. Now with all that kind of like introductory material, we'll look at verse, verse one of chapter 16. Uh, Jesus said to the disciples, there was a, a rich man who had a manager. So this rich man theme was... Like, remember the, the previous parable, like two verses before was the prodigal son and started the exact same way. There was a rich man. He's getting into this rich man thing. And remember also at the end, I read it a second ago, the Pharisees who were lovers of money. So whenever Jesus says, and there was a rich man, they're like, they're like oh, really? How did he become rich? Tell me, tell me, about, <laughs> tell me about his situation. They're identifying with this. So they're always kind of drawn in by this detail. There was a rich man who had a manager, And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. That's the same word for wasting that the prodigal son used when he went out and he took his father's money and he went out into foreign land and wasted all of his dad's money, chased it away, uh, frivolities, whatever. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Pause there. So he's heard, apparently in a reliable way, that... He's he's, wa- his, he's wasting his possessions. In most situations, you think this ruler would have walked up to him, the rich man, and just had him arrested. There's no conversation, just or have him executed. It's kind of harsh way, but he actually says, "What's this? I hear about you. Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. You're fired." So he just takes his job away but there's a conversation that seems to be somewhat peaceful. And now, here's an interesting thing. It's, doesn't, it's not like he, he, he packs up his box, like the way, that, the way people get fired today, it's a sad reality of like it's, they wait until Friday at 4.59 and they say, here's a box, go get your things. So there's not, there's not time for you to go out and take the copier and <laughs> smash it in the field or whatever you might be motivated to do on your way out, right? That's why they have you escorted off the premises by a police officer at 459 on your last day, right? That's not what happens here, because he's got time for some reason. And that's really a, a, the main theme that's, that's in this parable. So the manager says to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is, is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. There's this theme of, of death. Remember the prodigal son, he was finally brought down to nothing. He was in the pigs, he was in the pig pen, wishing he could eat the pods. He is, he's at his nothing point. The, the lost sheep, a sheep that's lost and away from the shepherd is a dead sheep. The coin, a coin that is, that is lost has no value. Because the coin, only, it only has value if you're using it. But if, if you lost it, it's lost all of its value. So it's this theme of something that is, has been brought to its, it's death. And its low point, I'm, I'm, I've got nothing. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. He's got time to, to do some damage on the way out of the office. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. Now the word for measures there, the Greek, um, the different commentators, commentaries are pretty clear that this is between eight and 900 gallons of oil. So a lot. So that's quite the debt that he owes his master. And he says, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50, so cut it in half. So there's a, a little detail here he doesn't say, "Give me your bill and let me write 50. What does he do? you he has them do it in their own hand for some for some odd reason um it's maybe it's so it's not attached to him. he's kind of keeping his hands clean but in, in like it's a, it's a bizarre thing like it's just a piece of paper and in in our in our it's like if I think JP Morgan Chase or whoever it is owns my mortgage now. And why don't I just take my mortgage statement and just scratch out what I owe and write a new thing on there and then take it to Chase and say, look, look what you promised me, right? It's not gonna, it doesn't actually work that way. And yet here it, it will. And there's a reason why cause it's not just, it's not just them writing down their own, like messing up their own mortgage statements, but it is the steward who is member speaking on behalf of the owner. So it carries this weight. So when he says, cut your bill in half, what the recipient hears is, not that the steward says cut your bill in half, but who? The owner. So they're like, oh, he is such a, what a great guy. Then he says to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write 80. Now there doesn't seem to be at this, there's not like a, a logical, it's not like a system. He's, he's just illogically reducing these debts. The other one was half. This one, he's taken off 20% of it. I mean, the percentages are, are kind of a different thing. But you're getting, in your picture, in your head, like, as he, remember he had called all of the debtors together and they're like in a line outside of his, and then, so you, if you're in the back of the line, you're watching guys come up and everybody's like, I wonder what he's gonna say. And then how are they walking away from the desk? They're skipping. I can't believe it. And over and over again. And so imagine what the reputation of the owner is becoming. This guy is so what? Merciful. Generous. Kind. So you can hear in in this little village around the rich man's castle or whatever, like you're hearing the festivals and the lutes and the lyres, which are apparently instruments from Daniel. I don't know. And, and you hear like champagne corks popping. And it's this rejoicing of how, what a wonderful manager we, we have. Now that's helpful because the master wants to be known in such a way. The master commended, verse 8, the, dis, the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. That doesn't make any sense. So remember, what was the initial context? The owner is angry at the manager, for what? Wasting Wasting his possessions. possessions. Not doing what he's supposed to be doing with them. Wasting them, squandering them, stealing from him. What do you call it? (laughs) Like, how is this any different? He's, so he, he, somebody owed him a thousand gallons of oil or I guess 2,000 gallons of oil and he cut it in half? He stole what? He stole it all, right? But he doesn't get mad. This is where we kind of see some of the value in this text. If, if, the, if the text is just teaching us how, to, how we should be um, not wasters of stuff. Like this, this, is, this is sometimes interpreted as a, a text on stewards, being good stewards of God's stuff, of the stuff that you have, your time, your money, your possessions. Don't waste the stuff. That would make sense maybe if... The manager or the owner commended the manager because he cleaned up his act. He stopped wasting his money and then he was doing better. But he's commended for getting worse. He's commended for doing what? <laughs> so not stealing. Being sh- so, so shrewdness is commended. But what it, So what he's done is he's forgiven, he's forgiven debts. He's forgiven what, is, what was owed, mercy. And that's the reputation that the owner wants. And that's the, and that's the reputation that the owner's like, well, you're, you're pretty, that was a pretty smart move because you know how much I want to be known as, as a merciful master. And he's not, gonna, he's not gonna go back on that word. He could, I mean, he certainly would have all the legal, it was not, how can this hold up in court? You wrote on your own bill? But he says, nope, I'm a, I wanna be known for my mercy. He commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Just a second, Let me lose my train of thought here. So the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now That word for shrewdness happens to be the same word that's often translated as wise. So remember the wise and foolish virgins on the, on the final judgment parables? Uh, the, so you got the five foolish virgins and the five wise and the five wise had enough lamp oil, right? That's the same word. The shrewdness is the same wisdom. Also, the guy who builds his house on the rock—it's like the little, the, the three little pigs um, parallel. The guy who builds his house on the sand or out of straw, those things fall apart. But the but the, house, the guy who builds his house on the rock stands because he is wise. That's this wisdom there, and also the wisdom that Solomon himself prayed for in First Corinthians or First Kings three. So it's this, it's a, there's a wisdom, not just this shrewdness and cleverness, but this wisdom. So the wisdom is this passing over, sharing this mercy that, is, that has been shown to him. So he wasn't, he wasn't arrested right away, but he's given this time to actually then go and be merciful all the more for the guy who wants to be known according to mercy. We can see in this, or the, to, to, well, first, Dennis, before I go on. Hmm. I mean, perhaps, but I, I think the we know the motivation behind the steward. His goal is to do what? How? How is he trying to survive? Making friends, so like, so that they like him. When they find out what's happened, they're like, "Hey, well, I remember the great debt that you." But it doesn't make sense. It wouldn't actually work out this way in a real. Like in, any, in our, I mean, just think in our context, any any parallel situation would just be legally shot down, like immediately. And yet, it's because it's not about this face value; it's about the Lord wanting to be known in His mercy. So this is famously known as the hardest, the hardest parable, and really this whole section of Luke um, is known as the hardest teaching of Jesus. Hard not in the sense that it's like like from today's gospel, if your eye makes you sin, rip out your eye. I mean, that's hard in the sense of the, the law's harshness. This is hard in the sense of kind of scratching your head and trying to figure out what Jesus is getting at. That's why I wanted to start with, we have to see behind the parables the mystery of the cross as being the main thing. If Jesus is just interested in telling us how to be better stewards of our stuff, then why did he go to the cross? I mean, he's at this point in Luke 16, he's getting he's getting close to the end, and he's stopping along the way, telling us how to don't waste don't waste your stuff. That's not it doesn't make any sense. He's about the cross here. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Another confusing statement. Trying to scratch so. Some are confused by this parable in general because the master commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. So is Jesus saying that it's okay to be dishonest? It's okay to be, he's, he's, he's like encouraging the theft. He likes the dishonest manager for being dishonest and everybody's just kind of scratching their heads and what's going on here. That's why you have to remember what he's commending here is the forgiveness of debts. That's the main thing. Now this one line, and the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation, the sons of light. The best interpretation I saw on this was this focus of the sons of light aren't as as good at trying to manipulate people in this this world, in in our own generation, because we actually have in mind, we should have in mind this eternal perspective. So keeping in mind this eternal perspective, I'm not trying to manipulate people for short-term purposes, but rather with this eternal perspective, it frees me up then thinking about using our money. It frees me up and using all of the stuff that I have, knowing that I can't take it with me, but I can use it and freely and enjoy now. I'm not fully satisfied with that. I mean, it's good. It's not a it's not bad advice. Uh, to use our money as means, you can't take it with you. Um, some, ta- some say using it to, to use our using our money and our possessions in support of the of the gospel. Verse nine: I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. This idea of using our using our stuff toward the gospel, towards the kingdom, use. I think that's all, maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's fine. It Doesn't seem to really fit though in the parable of this mercy. So, I don't know. Verse 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? So, in the parable, in the context of the parable, what does it mean to be faithful with the true riches? What is he commended for? Not just shrewd. So he's commended for being shrewd for what he did. So the goal—the the goal isn't shrewdness. I, I would—I mean, I—that's where I'm currently arguing, I guess. The goal isn't just a generic shrewdness, but he's committed for being shrewd because of what he did, which is the forgiveness of debts, this mercy. So to be be a good steward of the true riches, we have to identify what the true riches are. What are the true riches? Eternal life, salvation, receiving this abundant mercy from our Lord. So then how are we faithful with it? giving it out to others we dole out the wealth of our master so what is what's the wealth that we're giving away it's not it doesn't have a dollar sign on it cuz it's not about a dollar sign what's it about if you're helping them know what the kingdom of god is by giving them the gospel. well so that so that maybe in one way we talk, telling people about jesus preaching the gospel in a sense i think maybe that's that's certainly there but for if, if, the, if the great riches that I've received is actually having my debt forgiven, then what is, what is it being passed to me to do to others? Forgive to forgive others. forgive others. So for me now to be faithful in these riches is to simply forgive as I have been forgiven. And that's not a new theme in Luke or I mean, in our whole Christian life, in the liturgy, it's on and on, right? The, we're, we're filled up with His forgiveness and it overflows to others. But now he's talking about riches, the true riches in verse 11. Uh, and so, it, by the way, if the true riches is salvation, I mean, just think about it in this, in this one verse alone, verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? If we, if we read this the wrong way, we start to say, okay, then if I'm faithful in the, in the way that I use my money, then God's gonna give me the true riches. And the true riches is salvation. What have I just created? Works, pretty, pretty clear works righteous system here. If I'm, all I do, all, now I can be good in using my money and God's going to give me salvation. Why bother going to the cross, Jesus? I'll just be a good steward of using my money. That's why the parable is not about how to use your money. Right? He's getting at this forgiveness point. And the true riches is about forgiving sins and he wants us forgiving one another in the same way. But now he's brought this word riches in And I would contend, this is very helpful for getting into this next section in verse 13. Because he takes the riches comment, which is drawn in the ear of the Pharisee. And he says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or God and mammon. We've heard that before uh, in, in the parable of, uh, I think, the guy with the barns. He's, he's taught on this before, but it hasn't been a parable on how to use your money. This is a true law. It's good law. You can't serve two masters. You're, you're going to hate one and love the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. And it's true you cannot serve God and money. So what this should do for us is hit us as more... As more law. It's good practical advice, but you're not gonna you're not gonna keep it. You're not gonna win at this. He's talking to the Pharisees. What are true I'm all about my true riches. Jesus is talking about money, and now he's he's calling me up and saying, You can't serve God in money, Pharisees. Verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. And he said to them, You are though, this is the heart of the text. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. So they're they're trying to justify themselves or seek righteousness according to their their outward flesh and keeping the law. Uh, And their, their their unrighteousness is at the heart point. So Jesus is after their hearts to bring repentance into their hearts. So the hints, I would make the case that that's why he's kind of, he's talking about forgiving debts and the the parable is is all about forgiving debts, but since money is kind of at play there, he starts to transition in the money towards the Pharisees to invite them in and then smack them. You can't serve God in money. Stop trying to justify, you are those who try to justify yourselves before men, but God knows your dirty hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You think you can use the law to climb up the ladder to heaven. You think you can use the law to try to force your way in. Verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John, since then the good news of the kingdom is preached and or but everyone forces his way in. It's another hard teaching here, and I would contend. Who's trying to force their way into the kingdom? The Pharisees. The Pharisees. though the law and the prophets are, in fact, g- good. And in fact, if we get to it, hopefully, the rich man and Lazarus at the end of chapter 16 concludes with the, um, Abra- or Abraham talking to the guy in hell, saying they don't need to see someone come back from the dead. They have. What do they have? They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Moses and Jesus in Luke 24, in the same, only a few chapters away from where we are now, Jesus, when he unfolds, when he opens up the scriptures to the, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he, said, he opens the scriptures and he says, all of, the, all of Moses and the prophets testified about Jesus. The, at the time of the New Testament, the Bible was just the Old Testament. It's all about, it's all leading up to this mercy of God, the forgiveness of God. But is it also possible to hear the whole Old Testament in a wrong way? That's only a way that I can use to tr- climb up to heaven on my own? Oh, yeah, that's what the Pharisees are doing. And, here's, and this, is the, this is the problem. The law and the prophets are now being abused rather than being this tool through which the, the Pharisees are supposed to be and the scribes and the teachers of the law who work in the church they're the old, the, old, the old Israelite pastors, you might say. It's been entrusted to them the true riches of mercy and forgiveness. And what are they not doing? They're not forgiving. They're just giving more laws. They're giving more stuff to do. They're, they're trapping more people in. So it's the opposite. of, And they're trying to force their way into the kingdom. But, verse 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now what is What? How does that fit? So what, what are the Pharisees doing to the law? They're not, the, so the Pharisees, from our perspective, we'd say the Pharisees are all about the law. They're, they're, they're so law focused and that's right. The problem though is that what they're doing to the law is actually lowering the bar. They're the ones who are making it void because they're making it achievable. What is the purpose of the law? To show me my sin, so I'm forced to Jesus, right? So that's the, the whole point of the law is to to drive me to Jesus. But if I think it's there for me to climb up on my own bootstraps, then I need to hear from Jesus in today's gospel lesson that you, you, you can't do it. When you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. When you think hateful thoughts, you've murdered, right? So the law is... Cutting all the way to the heart. So stop trying to weak the, weaken the law. The law is not going anywhere, Pharisees. It is in its full force. Now, that, all this clear teaching of the law against the self-righteousness of the Pharisees is essential, I would argue, for what's coming up in these next, this next one verse. Has Jesus been talking about marriage so far in verse 16 or the entire Bible up to this point? And, uh, uh, sorry, the whole Gospel of Luke. Think back, how many times does he talk about marriage in, in Luke 15 and 16? Do you remember me giving my marriage stick lately? No. And it's not on the table. So then, why all of a sudden in verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband, commits adultery. Very often, this verse is yanked out and used to, to guide someone on, on, should I get married? Should I marry someone who's been divorced? Or how do we handle divorce? All these kinds of things. To do such, I think, is, well, is a wrong treatment of this. Because Jesus isn't, in this, in this context, Jesus is not talking about divorce and marriage. Who's he after right here? The Pharisees. And he's after them for what? Self-righteousness. So you could go to the Pharisees and they could give you a certificate of divorce. There's a way that you could try to to justify your divorce and and somehow make it righteous, a, a, a clean divorce. As though I can keep my hands clean in this. It's somehow free from adultery. And Jesus is driving home, the, the, the. this is just an example, in addition to the money that he, had, that he had kind of put on the other side of this teaching of self-righteousness. But now he's coming back to them on marriage. And there's no, for example, when it comes to divorce, adultery is the problem. You're not going to keep your hands clean. You guys are trying to give away certificates of divorce to try to make a righteous or okay or approved divorce, and you can't do it. Everyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So there's, there's no way to get there's no way to be clean on this. There's going to be adultery all over the place. Isn't that what the Pharisees are using? Since they said to Jesus that Moses gave us a certificate, now we're talking about the law and Moses again. And this is what they were trying to use, telling Jesus that Moses gave us. A of- exactly, and I think that's—I think that's a parallel to this in Matthew. I mean, even today, in today's gospel reading, Jesus—Jesus—echoes this. Remember, uh, whoever looks at, a woman, looks at a woman with lustful intent commits adultery in his heart. Whoever divorces, or um, is it marries someone who's been divorced, commits adultery. So this, the law is comprehensively condemning. There's no—there's no way to keep your hands clean. That's the case I would make here regarding how Jesus is teaching on divorce. And he's not giving us a, a way of thinking about divorce and remarriage on, its, on the face of this. So the church has handled this in a diverse, a diverse, uh, lots of different ways in the last 1,500 years or so. And you hear lots of different teachings on this, but I would contend, oh, I'll just make a couple of points. For one, just on general, Divorce is, is bad. And, but we don't even have to start with that. That's the wrong place to go. It's that marriage is good. And not just good, but it's life-giving. And, and there's, a, there's a oneness in marriage. So you have the, the, obvious, the one flesh union, the sexual act that brings forth children. Let I me mean, just think, the, one, the oneness of the one flesh union is the very act that brings forth the child that looks like both mom and dad, right? So marriage, the the act of the sexual union brings forth children in the marriage. So whenever there's adultery, it shatters the one flesh union, it breaks the marriage. But as Jesus says, Mm -hmm. you don't have to actually break the marriage by having the physical act. How do you commit adultery? Just by your, your your lustful thoughts. So then no one's clean. No one's gotten no one's no one's kind of kept their marriage apart from this sinful taintedness, right? And yet we have a Lord, I mean to say that I would I would contend that to say a person can't be remarried after being divorced is to say that Jesus can't cleanse the sinner of sin and shame so let that sink in like the, so it, to, so divorce is wrong because we all it, everyone knows that it's a problem